But we're doing something a little different tonight. We, we like a little creativity, a little experimentation here at City Life. And so in, instead of just having one message for Father's Day this weekend, we thought that uh, it would be great for you to hear from four of us that are a part of our staff team. So we've each been given just a few minutes, emphasis on just a few minutes for us to be able to share some of our perspectives on fathering. Part of it, right, is we're different generations, old like me, young like others. We come from different walks of life, different life experiences. We have different practices and traditions in, in our homes as, as dads and families. And so you're going to hear from each of us tonight. And I, I, I trust that you're going to be just as impacted, this has been my prayer for tonight, that you're going to be just as impacted and ministered to at the finish as I am excited for you now at the start. You're going to be just as impacted and ministered to at the finish as I am excited here at the start. We joke that everybody that goes over their 12 minutes for every two minutes, they've got to do 10 push-ups on the stage, so, which would be problematic for me because I probably can't do one. I probably can't do one. Ethan's going to come and do my push-ups for me. Yeah, that's good. All right, I want to open with this video. This is going to start my time together, the dad battle. Gentlemen. Gentlemen. Welcome to another dad battle. Now, is anybody, and I mean anybody at all, willing to face our champion? Gentlemen, my son joined the golf team at school, so I bought him an extra pair of socks in case he gets a hole in one. Hole in one. His dad jokes are so effortless. See that? That's why he's the champ. That's nothing. The other day, my daughter said a good Christian dad would buy her a car. So I said, well, a good Christian kid would walk, because that's what Jesus did. Fathers! Listen up, son. Just because God picked your nose doesn't mean you should. <laughs> when you start paying the bills, you can make some of the rules. Come on! Yeah. Yeah. Hold up! Who touched the thermostat? Yeah. That lawn isn't gonna mow itself. Let me stop what I'm doing and fix your boredom. Hi, Hungry. I'm Dad. I love the smell of Home Depot in the morning. Oh, yeah. 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 Just wait till your mother gets home. Yeah. No. 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 Pull my finger. Nah. 
Just rub some dirt on it. Proud of you. You can do hard things. I love you, no matter what. When God made you, He made something very special. Proudest day of my life is the day you made me a father. I thank God for you every time I get on my knees and pray. And again, who gives this woman? No, no, you look at me. You look at me. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Mother and I do. So, to all the fathers in the room, I want you to hear me say this. There are things that every child needs to hear from their father. There, there are things that every child needs to hear from their father, just as you saw in this video. Not the dad jokes, right? Not the who touched the thermostat, but the back half of that video, every child needs to hear those kinds of words and phrases from their father. This is the first thing I want you to leave here with. Find your voice. If you are a father, you have got to find your voice where you have the courage to say those things because your children need to hear you say it. You might not be the only one that says those things to your children, but you should be one of the first people on the planet that they hear those kinds of things from. You shouldn't be catching up, and if you do catch up and keep going, you should be one of the loudest voices saying those things, those words of affirmation into the lives of your children. Your children should hear those kinds of things more in their home from you and their mother than anyone else on the planet. The lack of your voice, your silence, will leave a void in your child's life, and I guarantee you someone else will fill it to their detriment and to your regret. Find your voice. Somebody say love. Somebody say loyalty. If you're watching online, you can type in the chat, love and loyalty. I want to spend the rest of my time now talking to young fathers who are presently married. Will it have meaning for others? I think it will, but I, I, for specifically for young fathers who are presently married, there's some things I want you to hear me say. I'm old. I'm gray with what little bit of hair I have left. I'm past halfway at 55. Vanessa and I celebrated 25 years of marriage in May. We have three children, 21, 19, and 18. That's 58 combined years of fathering. 58 combined years. 
And as I've been reflecting on those 58 combined years of parenting this week, there's two things that kept coming to the surface that I want you to hear me say, young fathers who are presently married. And the first one is this, love your wife. Love your wife. Every child's most important need is a sense of safety and security. The core need in every child's heart is a sense of safety and security in life. They do not get that from your standard of living that you bring home. They, don't, they do not get their safety and security from the square footage of your house, for how new your car is. They don't get their safety and security from your vocational accomplishments and accolades. They get their sense of safety and security from the vibrancy of the marriage between their mother and their father. It begins there. Their sense of safety and security begins by the health of the marriage in the home. Love your wife. Love your wife. You might not know this, but there's a parenting class we've been teaching for over 20 years, and in that parenting class, it talks about one of the primary reasons that children have a hard time sleeping through the night. They don't realize it when they're little, but subconsciously, there is this innate need and innate desire to see their parents together. And so they wake up in the middle of the night because the only time they get to see their parents together is when they're asleep in their room. You can change that pattern in your, in your home. You can change that dynamic. This parenting class talks about this practice of called couch time. It means that when your children are young, there should be once every day, TV off, phones put away, where your children see you engaged in a meaningful, loving conversation with each other. Even though your children are too young to understand what's going on, what they realize when they see that is that they're okay, and when they realize that you're okay, then they feel okay. Love your, find your voice, love your wife. My last one is this, be loyal to Jesus. Be loyal to Jesus. Find your voice, love your wife, be loyal to Jesus. Whether you are a Navy SEAL or a poet that loves choreography, it does not matter. Masculinity has little, if nothing, to do with the broken, secular, Americanized definition of toughness. It does not. Manhood is about virtue. Manhood is about virtue. And the gateway to all virtue in our lives begins with loyalty to Jesus. Bringing your children to church is not enough. It's a great start. It's not enough. Loyalty to Jesus looks like serving his bride, which he says is his church. Do your children see you serving Jesus' bride? Are your children growing up in a home where they see their father serving the bride of Christ? Be loyal to Jesus. It's the gateway to virtue in your life. Reading your Bible isn't enough. It's a great start. It's not enough. Loyalty to Jesus looks like living under the authority of the Bible without compromise. Do your children see you living according to the wisdom of Scripture? Be loyal to Jesus. Going to heaven is not enough. Going to heaven is not enough. Your children need to see an example of Christianity that is life-defining, passion-filled, and moment-by-moment governing. They need an example in you of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Do you want to just get to heaven? Or do you want to live the kind of life that inspires your children in such a way that one day they will meet you there? Be loyal to Jesus. Love your wife. Find your 
voice. Father, I pray for every father that's in this room. If they haven't found their father's voice, I pray they're going to find it. If their relationship with their wife is struggling, I pray that they're going to ask for the help. They're going to raise their hand just as if their house were on fire. They wouldn't hesitate to call 911 for the fire department to show up. If their marriage is burning down, that they would ask for some help, that they would love their wife. And I pray, Father, above all else, that every father in this room, every father that's watching online, that every father that there's going to be a sense of loyalty and devotion that is unrelenting in their heart, Jesus, towards you all of their days. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. I loved my toes. I could never grow old enough or wear enough shoes to get away from them. They are my roots. They are what keep me planted in the sands of my strides as they wriggle through time to keep me steady. And I'm heavy. To think about eight little toes and two big ones holding up 190 pounds, it's like tons. Worlds of pressure, but they still hold me up like soldiers I never told her, but I love my toes. I always took such pride in the length of their spines, keeping connected with my feet as they reached from concrete into me. I always loved the way they pinched together the fabric of my socks. So at night, I wouldn't have to wake or shift my weight to remove them. I would treat them like fingers attached to my feet that could pick off my socks under my sheets where I would collect them in the morning. If she would have known, maybe she would have given a warning. Maybe she would have kept it a secret, but instead she told me. You have toes just like your father, she said. And it went to my head. No, not in a good way, more like a headache, more like a migraine. I was fine not knowing. I was fine growing old and dying with my toes. Why couldn't it have been my nose, my ears, my eyelashes, anything but my toes? You have finger toes, she called them, but by then I was done with this discussion and the repercussions of her words reverberated from the tip of my head to my feet. Now every beat, every step, every stance is just another chance for me to remember. Maybe it was their dexterity that allowed him to walk so steadily away. Maybe it was the length of them that multiplied his strides, making it so easy for him to keep his distance. Maybe it was the span of them that made him feel man enough to leave behind a boy for a while. I loved my toes, but now they're just another part of me. I can never grow old enough or wear enough shoes to get away from them. They are my roots. They are what keep me stranded in the sands of my strides as they wriggle through time to keep me steady. And I am heavy. I um, take the snaps. <laughs> so I wrote that poem years ago when I was first kind of discovering my voice as a spoken word poet and also at a time when I was just wrestling with this complicated relationship that I have with my father. And so we all inherit something from our dads, right? Whether it's our toes, our nose, our hair, um, things that we see sometimes it's things that we hear. Maybe it's a laugh, maybe it's a turn of phrase, right? And then there are even behavioral things that we inherit. For me, 
I discovered that my handwriting is amazingly similar to my dad's, even though I didn't grow up with him and I didn't grow up watching him write. And so there are things, whether we can, you know, we want it or not, we inherit from our parents and, and there are certainly things that we are not happy to inherit. And so for me, it, was, it is this legacy of absenteeism and it's truly a legacy uh, in, a, in a similar way that, my father was absent in my life. His father was absent in his. And on a recent trip to visit my, my grandma, my dad's mom, 94 years old in Pennsylvania, um, I learned so much about my family when I went up there. And I discovered that also she grew up fatherless, right? She actually grew up uh, believing that her grandparents were her parents until they passed away. And then she found out that her mean older sister was actually her mom. And her dad was completely absent, never spoken of, no name known. In the most recent uh, Stranger Things series, don't worry, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, <laughs> but there's a scene where, where one of the characters says to another, I think it must be hardwired in us to reject our fathers so we can grow and move on, become something of our own. So anyone who grew up the way that I did can relate to this quote. There are definitely there was definitely something within me at a very young age that said, I'm never going to be like my dad, right? I won't make the same mistakes. I can't wait. Even at a very young age, when I was a kid myself, I remember thinking, I can't wait to have kids so that I can be a better dad. And, um, and so, right, we make vows to ourselves that because of the hurt and the pain we experience from our fathers, we'll, we'll do better. And so... Um, you become a parent then and realize how difficult that is, that every day does not look like, you know, the family portrait, and there are a million and one reasons to fall into the same traps, right? The same self-pity, the same self-doubt, the same self-focus that your father once did. And suddenly, all the urges that must have fallen on him, they fall on you as well. The urge to run, to chase addiction, to chase infidelity, um, the urge to separate yourself from the emotions, uh, the emotional drain of, of, of your family problems, whether or not you lean into those urges, they're there. And so scripture actually talks about these kinds of sinful inheritance of urgences, urges. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this re repeated refrain that says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And the concept of generational curses is a very real truth, not only written about in scripture, but also like written about in our bodies. There, there, there's a lot of science right now talking about how trauma is passed down from generation to generation. And I believe that's true for sinful tendencies. They're, they're naturally passed down from generation to generation. And if not addressed, they're going to continue affecting the generations to come. But what I love, every time the Bible mentions a generational curse, it always makes the point that God's steadfast love transcends these curses, and is, he's able to lavish upon us mercy and love and forgiveness, not just to three or four generations, but to thousands. God is able, in other words, to interrupt the sinful cycles of our fathers by getting a hold of us. I believe, though, that, that that transition from curse to blessing can't happen out of a place of resentment and rejection. Stranger Things is a great TV show, but it is not an authority on breaking generational curses, right? I don't think the answer is simply just in rejecting our fathers and forging our own way. Instead, it's about being adopted 
by a heavenly father and letting him redeem your story. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. I was a teenager when that very thing happened to me. The Holy Spirit, his spirit joined with the spirit inside of me to affirm and declare over my life. I heard so clearly and felt so clearly the voice of God calling me his son, and it completely changed my life. And as I was learning, as I continue to follow Jesus, I learned that as an adopted child of God, I am an heir. I'm an heir to eternal life. I'm an heir to a better life. But what strikes me today is that part of that inheritance of a better life is a better fatherhood. I believe that, that fatherhood is something that really is inherited. You can't make up your own mind what it means to be a good father, which means you have to be a son of a good father first. And we can't simply be better fathers by being the opposite of who our fathers were to us. We need a positive example. We need someone to teach us a better way. And so for those of us who grew up without a positive father figure in your home, that means you have to see yourself as a son, as a daughter of a heavenly father before you can claim to know how to be a good parent yourself. It's only because of his example that we learn how to parent like he does how to live like he does with the characteristics that define him, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, right? Uh, who doesn't need those things as a parent every day? And so in order to be better fathers, we have to embrace our adoption as God's children, but we also need to embrace our past. Romans 8, 28, it says, and we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. I think for me, Part of the reason why I was able uh, to experience that encounter where his spirit joined with mine and I was able to really truly see and feel that I was the son of God is because in that season of life, when I was a teenager, when that happened, I was so desperate for a father. It was right at that transition of life from boy to man where I was looking around to see what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to shave, to drive, to date girls, right? And... Um, and I don't know, if, if, I, if I had not been so desperate for a father then, maybe I would have missed the call to be a son, God's son. And uh, I don't mean to say that my fatherlessness was God's best plan for my life, but like Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things, the good and the bad together for our good. And so that's the meaning of redemption. It's not just rejecting the past and starting with a blank slate. Um, it's accepting it for what it is and trusting that God can use it for your good. Uh, I stress that because just because we're spiritually adopted by God, it doesn't mean we don't still have the same physical and behavioral connections to our earthly fathers. It is not possible for us to truly reject our fathers and become something of our own, whether we like it or not, right? Their DNA is in us. We got their toes, right? But it is possible for that DNA to be redeemed, so one last sci-fi reference for you. <laughs> in Star Wars Episode Nine, there's a pivotal scene where the Force Ghost version of Luke, I said forced, Force Ghost version of Luke, yes, says to Rey, a thousand generations live in you, but this is your fight. And it's not clear, at least to me, whether the generations he's referring to are those of the past or the future, but the reality is that both past and future generations are always present in us. 
And there is always going to be a fight that we have to choose to battle against the sinful cycles of past generations while embracing God's blessing for the future ones. And so my encouragement for you, dads in the room, sons and daughters, is that you don't fight the battle on your own. Don't pave your own way. Lean into your adoption into God's family and let him take the chapters of your family's past that you couldn't possibly rewrite and let him add a better chapter to the story. The beauty of redemption is that God does not uproot you from the reality of your story. We don't move on from our past father's legacies, but we do grow into our own, up and out of the same soil that we've been rooted in all along, right? So I'm gonna pray, God, I pray for every person in this room tonight that God, who needs to be adopted by you. I pray for every son and daughter who's been looking for a father, maybe in this season of life especially. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you do in them what you did for me when I was just a teenager. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that your spirit affirm in them their adoption, God, their place in your family. And I pray not only that, God, but that you redeem their story. Lord, that you lead them into a better future, not just for themselves, but for the thousands of generations that are in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody give Pastor David a hand tonight. Amazing job. Amazing job. All right, somebody say give, stand, and serve. All right. The Bible says a good person leaves an inheritance to their grandchildren. Some, some translations say their children's children. But the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. Proverbs 13, 22. There are an estimated 72.2 million fathers in the United States. 4.2 million of those are black fathers. And I am one of those 4.2 million black fathers who has the honor of raising three beautiful, world-changing, Jesus-loving black daughters. Their names are Reagan, Ryan, and Rain. They already got them on the screen for me. Uh, before I got married, y'all, I would tell my friends, I'm not having no girls when I get married. I'm having all boys. Apparently, God had other plans, right? <laughs> that interrupted plan has been one of the greatest joys of my life. Uh, for those who don't know, I am the only natural child born to Gail Roberts House and Arthur Lee House Jr. My mom is also an only child. However, my dad was one of 13. Yes, 13 with a one and a three. 13. So as you can imagine, the house was very active. It was probably crowded, full of love and life, but most of all, it was full of legacy. Can you show the second picture? So my father was born in 1932, and he went home to be with, the, with Jesus in 2010. So he and my mom, they had me when I was 49 years old, when he was 49 years old, because I'm not 49 yet, when he was 49 years old. So clearly, he was a man full of love, legacy, and apparently longevity. <laughs> but let's just focus on the legacy part for the night. All right. Matthew 6, 21 lets us know for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. And I'm a firm believer that the character and the mind of a child is often shaped by the heart of their father. The passion, the lessons learned, the lifelong support, and even the correction given flows from that special place. 
Proverbs 13 and 22 says, a good person leaves an inheritance to their grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. And many times when we hear the word inheritance in that scripture, we equate inheritance to meaning monetary gifts, things like money, a house, land. But can I suggest to you tonight that inheritance is way more than that? To the fathers here today, what inheritance or legacy are you building to leave for your children's children? Now, if we believe in spoken generational blessings, what legacy are you saying over them? What legacy are you modeling for them? Well, my father left me three major gifts of inheritance that I daily live to pass on to our three girls as the house family legacy. Somebody say giving, standing, and serving. The inheritance of giving has been a major gift of legacy in my life. My father not only gave me and others his money, resources, and love, but he also gave me his time. It has been said that if you ask a child how to spell the word love, they will spell it T-I-M-E. Now, there's been a notion made popular by Monaghan Report that says that black fathers are having children out of wedlock more than any men in any other race. In fact, the 2012 CDC reports found that there are 4 million more white children living in single-parent homes than there are black children in America. The unmarried black father has even been blamed, uh, has been blamed for the causes of poverty, youth crime, and drug use. But the actual numbers, they tell a different story. Contrary to popular belief, the Center for Disease Control and the Prevention has found that black fathers are actually more involved with their kids on a daily basis than fathers from other racial groups. The Pew Research Center also consistently concluded over the years that there are no significant differences in the parenting styles of black and white fathers, despite the myth that black fatherhood is in a prolonged state of crisis. Both reports measured income, emotional support, time fathers spent reading and eating with their children, and found that black fathers are often leading, those, leading other fathers in those categories. The CDC's data also based a survey on 3,900 fathers between 2006 and 2010 that also suggests that black fathers are more absent if absent is measured by fathers living in the same household as their children, but they are more involved in the lives of their children even when they don't live under the same roof. The study found that 70% of black dads said that they bathed, they diapered, they dressed those kids every day compared to 60% of white fathers, 45 of Latino, and 35 of those black fathers who lived with their young children said they read with them every day. Fathers, do we look at the time that we spend with our children as a burden or as an opportunity to build lifelong legacy through conversation and modeled positive examples? Now, those statistics I gave you, they weren't given to cause division, but they were given to provide a misnomer and to dispel the myth that there are no good black fathers living in America. All right? Uh, uh, along with the time that my father left me the legacy of giving resources and the importance of sowing good seeds in good soil. I know that many of the tables that I have access to, the favor I have, the trust I have in churches locally and even nationally are due to the positive seeds that my father sowed and the integrity of my father's name and his character. Proverbs 22 verse 1 reminds us that a good name is more desirable than great riches. Now, as a child, and even now, there are many things that I won't do 
because I don't want to embarrass my daddy's name. Oftentimes, your name will be in rooms that your feet will never step foot in. So, fathers, I ask you again, what are you giving? Is your name leaving a positive legacy for your children's children? So, so far, we talked about the inheritance of giving. The next inheritance that my father left me was the gift of standing. Uh, my father built uh, a legacy of the house family name of standing. My father was a bishop in the Lord's church in the denomination, uh, and he was very active in social justice. My, he was also a lifetime member and president of the NAACP in our city for over 20 years. For those of you who don't know what the NAACP stands for, it's the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. When that association was started, that's what people who had the skin, cone, skin tone that I share, that's what they called us. They called us colored. They didn't call us African-Americans. They didn't call us black. They called us colored. So that's why NAACP is the acronym. He advocated for those who were incarcerated and judged unfairly. He bailed people out of jail. He would find housing for those who had no address. Uh, those are the people that we label as homeless. He, found, he fought for voters' rights, women's rights, and he even marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. So on this weekend where we lament the seventh year anniversary of the Charleston Nine who were massacred by a white supremacist in their church while having Bible study, and we also celebrate Juneteenth, the official end of legalized slavery in America on June 19, 1865, my father reminded me to stand up and celebrate the legacy and strength of the ancestors who provided me this beautiful sun-kissed chocolate brown skin, while also treating others who didn't share my same skin color with dignity and respect. One of the major one-liners my dad would, also, would often say to me, he would say, House, not everybody in my, in my family, they called him men by their last name. He'd say, House, you should always stand up for what's right, even when you have to stand alone, misunderstood, and criticized, because the truth will always defeat a lie. Many of you see the social justice and racial justice advocate in me, but it is also a direct the reflection of the standing inheritance that and legacy given to me by my father. Because my father was always led by a Holy Spirit, he also instilled in me the need for the dependency of a Holy Spirit as well. Watching my father exhibit crazy faith, pastoring, leading our family, helping other people lead their families in times of crisis, helped solidify my partnership with the Holy Spirit, not just in worship and in music, but in social advocacy and leading my own family. So fathers, I'm asking you a question again. How are you teaching your children to stand? Let's be found standing on the word of God, not by society's standards. Whatever call you have on your life, know that you can stand firm and fulfill that call when you do it. God's way. Not just for you, but for the legacy you're building. All right, so we talked about what? The legacy, what was the first legacy gift my dad left me? The legacy of giving. The next one was a legacy of Oh, y'all a good class. I love it. I love it. I love it. Lastly, the inheritance of serving. Everybody say serving. As my father's serving was, as a father rather, serving is one of the most selfless acts that you can do. When you are serving, you're putting your child's needs and sometimes their wants before your own. You live in a posture of considering their feelings and their reactions above your own. Serving our children requires sacrifice. It requires a lot of patience. As I stated before, my father was born in 1932. 
although he was very humble and quiet, he was real old school in his approach when making his parental request of his child. It was a, do it because I said so, and do it now. With him being a father born in the pre-Jim Crow era, raising a male child born in the Bobby Brown, it's my prerogative era of, of the 80s and the 90s, you can only imagine the high energetic exchanges of dialogue we had in my house growing up. But my father soon discovered in my late teenage years and my college years especially that patience, prayer, and sometimes sacrifice were key to him serving me as well as he was my parent. He realized that how he said what he said to me was just as important as what he said to me. Fathers in the room, our tone affects how our messages are received by our children. Are we serving them well in the way that we speak to them? Are we serving them well in what we say? My father also instilled in me the notion of serving my way to where I wanted to be in life. Not, not in a manipulative, a manipulative way to brown nose your way, but in a way that made sure that I would know how to treat others once I became a leader. The best leaders are the ones who master how to follow. I'll say that again for the people in the balcony tonight. The best leaders are the ones who master how to follow. Fathers, we serve because we follow the example of Jesus, who was the ultimate, the ultimate servant. <laughs> Just do the work because it's your call, not so that your name can be called. The only call that we should desire is a well done, thy good and faithful servant from God. Serving our children not only creates trust with our children, but it also models them the love and the care that Jesus has for them. So as we conclude our time together tonight, let me say that being a black father and a girl dad has become one of the greatest achievements in my life. Now, every day is in peaches and cream. We aren't always in the rosebed beds, you know, coloring and having fun. Um, every day isn't, isn't always great. Because we've seen through America's history that the most disrespected person in our society is the black woman. So knowing that I am raising three black girls who will one day become black women, it can be intimidating. Especially because I was the only child, so I had no blueprint. However, I know that I'm not alone in my quest. I have an inheritance and a legacy from my father, Arthur Lee House Jr., as a blueprint as well as an inheritance and legacy from my heavenly father, who was the giver of life, who was the rock and foundation upon which I'm able to stand, and who was our ultimate servant. So maybe you're here in this room, and you're the father who's been listening to me tonight, and you've accepted your parental role. You love and you honor your kids wholeheartedly. You may be the father who has neglected your, your responsibility in times past, and you're, you're actively pursuing some corrective action to get that, that thing back in order. You may even be the child whose dad, who, who's, who you've had to live without your father as a consistent, active father. Your father may no longer be here on this earth as it is in my case, but wherever you find yourself, my prayer is that you know that you have been left a promised inheritance and a legacy by the Father. He loves you so much. In fact, he loves you so much that what did he do? He gave his only son to die just for you so that you could have direct access to him and to his presence. You have the grace not only to receive that love, but to live it out and to leave it for your children's children. 
As I close tonight, I'm going to leave you with a song lyric from one of my greatest songwriter influences, Fred Hammond. And he would pray this prayer. He would say, Our Father, we love to call you. By your grace, we are adopted. Now we're your children. And you now receive us. We're joint heirs with Jesus. You are our Father. You are our Father. Amen. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you for that word. Also, thank you, Loki, because you didn't uh, schedule Good Good Father to be sung on Father's Day weekend, right? That's the, that's the easy layup, the easy shot too many worship leaders take. But you got that Steph Curry range, right? So I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's not that I dislike the song. Like, I loved that song, Good Good Father, when it came out. It's just we played it to the ground. And then Chris Tomlin resurrected it with a remake, and then we played it into the ground again. But when that song came out, I loved it. I had it on repeat, and I can remember driving down 64 past Mercury Boulevard. I think it was like eight years ago, blasting that song. Context, <laughs> Steph and I had been trying and failing to get pregnant due to some early miscarriages. We were about a few years into a adoption process, an international adoption, where when we started it, it was three and a half years with the trend of increasing for them to set expectations. It had increased to the point where we were years in and it was still three and a half years with a trend of increasing, with rumors that Ethiopia might shut down international adoption altogether and they don't give refunds. So the dream that I had, much like Chris had of being a father, and most of us have of being a dad, it seemed fleeting, fading, and out of my control. And so I'm driving down 64 past Mercury Boulevard with that song blasting, and I feel the Holy Spirit prompt this question, will you still call me a good father if you don't have a kid that can call you one? And in that moment, right, it's a, it's a layered question, but the basis of that question was, do you trust me? Do you trust me? <laughs> I didn't verbally answer in the moment, probably because I was a little uh, <laughs> emotional, <laughs> but I like to think that I've answered with my life. It's been a biographical answer because the journey has taken a lot of trust. See, my wife, Steph, is in the third row right there. We've been married for about 12 years. In our, yeah. <laughs> in our first year of marriage, she started getting migraines, chronic pain, blacking out randomly, anaphylactic shock to all kinds of just reactions to different things. And it was like a constellation of symptoms hitting like a, a shotgun blast in her life. And it was years later. Matter of fact, the week before we went to India to adopt Raj that she got her diagnosis of a Chiari malformation a brain malformation that we would discover over time was tied to the heart condition. It was tied to even those miscarriages, and it was due to a, a degenerative condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS. Doctors even recommended that we, you know, stop trying to have kids because it would be a high-risk pregnancy, and those kids would likely have those same chronic conditions if they were born. But the good news, right, the good news is we were already adopting. And we adopted this beautiful kid, <laughs> Raj, at 18 months old from India, the God-ordained kid out of tens of millions of orphans in India for our family. And I can say that with utmost confidence because what's crazy is a couple years into our parenting journey, we took him in for an MRI on his brain just to see what's up with his delays and what was going on and what kind of uh, impact being in an orphanage might have had on his brain formation. And we found out that he had the Chiari malformation caused by the exact same rare conditions that my wife has. So the miracle I was praying for was that God would heal my wife. The miracle that God did <laughs> was 
part the ocean like he did the Red Sea for the Israelites so my son could be in a family where his mom understands his pain, his symptoms, all that in a way that few on the planet could. It's such a testimony. But, but not only do my son and my wife share the same condition, my son has dealt with the impact of being in an orphanage for years without much interaction at all, isolated, alone, and what that did to his brain. So he's been diagnosed with institutional autism, basically autistic symptoms that he has because he was in an orphanage, alone in his crib, without connections being made in his brain. So long story short, <laughs> fatherhood hasn't exactly been a walk in the park. And not long ago, Steph and I were watching this show, As We See It. It's on Amazon. It's about uh, young adults coming of age that are on the spectrum, as well as their caregivers. And at one point, the brother of a sister who was on the spectrum asks the father, he says, does it ever get any easier? And the dad's answer has stuck with me ever since. He said, as a kid, Jack used to throw epic tantrums. He'd scream and yell and get in fights with other kids. He'd bite them. He'd bite me. And I remember taking him to the playground and looking around and wishing I had any other kid in the world instead of him. And then I started to realize he was making me better. I became a little more considerate, more compassionate, and I liked the guy I became. So does it get any easier? No, not really. It's a hell of a burden, but it's also a gift. You know, in that testimony, I hear echoes of Romans 5 where suffering produces character and character produces hope. Or, or James 1 where it says suffering produces perseverance and that perseverance makes us mature and complete. Or as that father said, better people. It's a burden and it's a gift. And you know, in premarital counseling, I'll often talk to the engaged couple about how marriage, like your chief goal isn't to achieve happiness together, but to become holy together, more like Christ together. And I never really wrestled with that juxtaposition with parenting until I became a father. Am I, uh, uh, am I fathering, am I parenting this child because it makes me happy or because it's going to make me holy? Because parenting can be a tool that God the Father uses to parent us, to make us better people. In, in the show's terms, but in the Bible's terms, make us Christ-like. How specifically? If you've had kids, you know they break things. <laughs> but I'm not just talking about stuff in the house where you can childproof your house. I'm talking about our idols. For one, that idol of happiness, maybe like personal comfort, or if you've got an idol to your personal quality of life as a chief goal in life, your, your kid's going to smash that. <laughs> And it's in those especially uncomfortable seasons that we can start uh, jumping to the I can't wait until. I can't wait until she can talk or walk. I can't wait until she can drive. I can't wait until he, he can play some sports for all that energy. Or I can't wait until he finds a wife. And we often speak as if those are certain controlled outcomes. We have the expectations given to us from books that say if you do X, Y, and Z, then X, Y, and Z is going to happen. You got all those comparisons with other kids and families where you get the expectation that it, you put in the work. Right? We train our kids, we encourage them, we discipline them, we teach them, and we'll see fruit down the road. Fruit being a self-controlled, independent young adult. Right? It's a beautiful thing. I've heard it said your goal as a father is to parent yourself out of a job. Unless it isn't. Unless those outcomes that most talk about as certain controlled outcomes, driving, dating, and alike, they're altogether uncertain. Those things might happen for Raj. They simply might not. We don't know. A lot of us over the horizon is up in the air and out of our control. But no matter what unique factors are present in my family or your family with your own kids, we all experience this shattering of the facade of having control. Right? Sure, we discipline, right? we encourage, we teach, we train. We have God-ordained, priceless roles with precious input. And my prayer is that every seed you're planting in your kid's life will see fruit in the years to come. 
but we certainly don't walk with the level of control we'd like. And when you add to that a child that's nonverbal, a child that's on the spectrum and has all these violent trauma triggers, it's an, it's an abstract masterpiece. Now, let me be serious. It can be chaos. <laughs> this child from the East has come in and made my family the, the wild, wild West, and I love him to death. But as a result, we've had some common experiences for families with kids with special needs. You end up in public gatherings where folks want to make sure your day-to-day reality doesn't cross over into their experience and their gathering. It's the struggle to help your child assimilate into a society that rarely acclimates for him. And those inevitable exits where, where my son is kicking and screaming, maybe clawing at my face, and, and, and I'm walking out of a gathering where it looks like a kidnapping, <laughs> those are fun. The glass half full is like the spotlight of those stairs eventually just draws your insecurities out into the open until I don't have many cares what any stranger thinks anymore. The glass half empty is it's easy to drift into isolation. It's easy to drift into isolation. Folks are empathetic, but they don't really get it unless they're in it. And soon you're only going deep with a few folks because only a few get the complexities. But you know who gets it? It's Jesus. And I'm not just saying that to be cliched and churchy here on Father's Day. What I've thought about a lot recently, though, is the passion of the Christ, right? That week that Jesus lives leading up to his death and resurrection. It's called the passion of the Christ. And I've always just assumed passion is synonymous with love, right? For God so loved the world, Jesus came and died. Romans 5 says he demonstrates our love for us in this, that Jesus came and died for us while we were still sinners. But it was recently, in the past year, I learned that passion is actually tied to the Latin word for passive, meaning to undergo, to give up control, See, through most of his life, Jesus was in masterful control of every conversation and interaction. Yet from Gethsemane on, Jesus hardly did anything in his flesh. Right? Barely defended himself against the religious leaders. Pilate could hardly squeeze a word out of him. The passion of Christ speaks to his willing surrendering of control. He didn't act, he was acted upon. Totally trusting in those moments the will of the Father and the plan of redemption. And my goodness, if my life can sometimes feel like that, especially as a father. One day this will be a full sermon maybe, but much like Jesus meets us in our suffering, he also meets us in those moments where we feel like life is out of our control, happening to us, where after all of our trying, we can just get to trusting. It's all that's left. And not just that, he meets us in our trauma. See, trauma is closely linked to a lack of control. Emotional trauma is defined as the result of experiences that leave us feeling deeply unsafe and without control. This was much of Raja's early life. But our therapist, wife and I, Steph and I, we, we uh, do therapy with this therapist, and she recently dropped on us uh, this truth because we're guilty of comparing stuff that happens to Raj today and, the, and maybe some traumatic things he experiences, again, because society doesn't know how to deal with him, to the stuff he experienced back in the first couple years of his life. But what she dropped on us, I, I want to close with tonight because it's powerful, and it's the idea of shared trauma. Because when a painful experience we can't control, by definition, may still be traumatic, when it's not experienced alone and it's experienced with someone at your side, the negative impact is infinitely smaller. So the the things that happen to Raj in his life now, when he's got Steph and me by his side, are infinitely less impactful and harmful than they were when he was in an orphanage alone. And again, as a father, I fight tooth and nail to try to uh, uh, control circumstance and protect Raj. And every parent in this room, no doubt, shares that instinct for their kid. But we can't control the storms of life for our children, but we can share them. We can be present. We can be there. 
And in our American culture, where one in four kids in their home don't have a father present, that's saying something. But look, if you believe, believe the statistics uh, uh, for special needs families, I won't be present long. The statistics are sobering. The, the, the marriages that end in a divorce at an alarming rate, and that's not counting the, the medical conditions to boot. But I can't quit because I know I'm training wheels for Raj to grow into that relationship he's going to have with God the Father. The relationship with God the Father where his love is not based on performance. It's not based on what you can do uh, about checking boxes uh, or, or grades on an IEP. It's unconditional love. And the quality I want to teach Raj about the love of God is, is what it says in Isaiah, that he's not just our father, he's our everlasting father. Meaning his love doesn't change in hard seasons due to circumstance or suffering. It's consistent and it's constant. Come on, that's fatherhood. That's, that's manhood. It's more than that. that. That's adulthood. That's maturity. Teach your kids that, yeah, troubles are going to come. Hardships are par for the course. You can't control that, but what you can control is your response, your behavior, your, your character and consistency in an inconsistent world. But if I could have the worship team come up, I probably already owe push-ups. This is my Esther moment. I was going to the gym for such a time as this because I'll be doing push-ups here on Tuesday. But do you trust me? Maybe God's asking you the question he was once asking me. And look, the vibe on Father's Day is often like, let's rally, let's fight, let's be courageous, let's be heroes for our kids. And that's all well and good. And it got me thinking of one of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, who once wrote, unwavering trust is a rare and precious thing because it demands a degree of courage that borders on heroic. Jesus demonstrates this, walked this out for us, this courageous trust perfectly. The hero who gave up the comfort of heaven to endure the cross. The same Jesus who with the heart of trust at the end of his passion week said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we echo that tonight, not just with our own spirits and our own hearts, but with our children. When things seem out of our hands, trusting they're in God's hands. It's how as a father I can close echoing these lyrics that the artist Show Baraka once wrote in a song called I Don't Have the Answers about his unsung his own son with autism and health issues. He says, my son will be all right, but if he's not, my son will be all right because he is God's. Come on, let's commit ourselves again into God's hand as we close in prayer. God, each one of us are in seasons of life. Some seasons may feel more like the passion of Christ where life is happening to us, but we thank you that even in the hard times, you're present in us, you're pursuing it, you're pursuing us and you're parenting us. And for each one of us in the midst of a hard season, maybe it's left us feeling uh, limited or reflecting on our limits as humans and our reliance on your power. Whether it's left us feeling isolated, I pray that tonight we would do two things. And the first is look around. Realize this is a shared journey. You've put other people around us that we can lean into. And God, I pray that we would also look up. God, as we worship, we would look to you and remember Ephesians 1 where it says, everything is under your control. Even those things that seem out of control in our lives, that are, are out of our hands, God, your hands are over us. Your hands are beneath us to support us. Your hands are, are upon our families you love, you know, and you care. And we thank you for that, God. And we worship you, Jesus, for, for being that, that hero who set aside the comfort and privilege of heaven to come here to earth, trusting the will of the Father and purchasing our salvation. So we worship you tonight. We worship you, God, <laughs> the God of control. We trust in you. We put our faith in you once more, Jesus Christ. Let's worship together.